Um, there's two readings today, as um, Cameron said. Um, in the leaflet, you've actually got Matthew 7, but um, Cameron changed his mind at the last minute. <laughs> okay, so we'll start in Ecclesiastes 5, 1 to 6. Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. Go near to listen rather than to offer the sacrifice of fools who do not know that they do wrong. Do not be quick with your mouth. Do not be hasty in your heart to utter anything before God. God is in heaven and you are on earth, so let your words be few. A dream comes when there are many cares, and many words mark the speech of a fool. When you make a vow to God, do not delay to fulfill it. He has no pleasure in fools. Fulfill your vow. It is better not to make a vow than to make one and not fulfill it. Do not let your mouth lead you into sin. And do not protest to the temple messenger. My vow was a mistake. Why should God be angry at what you say and destroy the work of your hands? Hebrews 12:22-29. But you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. You have come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly to the church of the firstborn, whose names are written in heaven. You have come to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. See to it that you do not refuse him who speaks. If they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, how much less will we if we turn away from him who warn us from heaven? At that time his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, Once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. The words once more indicate the removing of what can be shaken, that is, created things, so that what cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful and so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. We've been exploring in our series, Chasing Life, where the good life is found. And when I say good life, I'm not talking about a life of uh, just kicking back and enjoying yourself, although a good life will be an enjoyable life. I'm talking about a life of meaning, a life that you would look back on and say that was a life well lived, a life of significance. And I think as we find those things, we will also find satisfaction and joy. And our partner in our series has been a guy called The Teacher, who wrote most of the book of Ecclesiastes, everything in the middle, except for the little bits at either end. Uh, His book has been our partner in our quest to find where the good life might be found, because his quest and our quest line up. He lines it up for us in there in chapter 2, verse 3. I wanted to see what was good for people to do under heaven during the few days of their life. And as we've actually walked in the book of Ecclesiastes, 
we've walked many roads together and we've hoped that in each case we would find a road that would lead us to our destination, the good life. And so we've explored control and power. We've explored relationships. We've explored work and money. We've explored wisdom and pleasure. And each time the teacher has come up with a verdict. You probably remember it. You've heard it a few times already. It's all hevel. Uh, it's meaningless. Not saying that it doesn't have any value, but it just doesn't last. At the end of the day, it just passes away like the mist or a vapour that the word hevel actually means. But we have been able to explore things a bit more broadly than the teacher. If you remember his perspective, he explored under the heavens, un- under the sun, sorry. We have been able to push it broader and explore under the heavens and found that in each case, Jesus redeems and transforms these things. And while they are not of ultimate significance, they do have some significance. And so as we turn to our topic today, our topic, which is chasing spirituality and religion, it's obvious that this is actually the answer, isn't it? If in each case we've gone and said, we need Jesus to transform it, this must be the answer. So what else would you expect a preacher to say, really? Um, Four headings you'll find today. Handle with care, the heart of the problem, one true worshipper, and religion redeemed. Let's look at what the teacher tells us about spirituality and religion. If you've got your Bibles, chapter 5, verse 1. It's what Diana read for us. I don't know about you, but this is a profoundly disconcerting piece of Ecclesiastes, which is a profoundly disconcerting book. He says things that you wouldn't imagine Scripture to say. What's he say? Verse 1. Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. Go near to listen rather than offer sacrifice of fools who do not know that they do wrong. He's telling us to be very, very careful. Guard your steps. We need to remember as we look at this that his perspective is under the sun, but he's telling us here, be very, very careful. There is real danger in hypocrisy. He goes on and he tells us to be careful with our words. Verse 2, do not be quick with your mouth. Do not be hasty in your heart to utter anything before God. Now, have you ever heard the Bible tell you to be really, really careful about praying? Because that's what he's doing. He's saying, be slow to pray. Verse 4. When you make a vow to God, do not delay and fulfill it, to fulfill it. He has no pleasure in fools. Fulfill your vow. It is better to not make a vow than to make one and not fulfill it. Do not let your mouth lead you into sin and do not protest to the temple messenger. My vow was a mistake. Why should God be angry at what you say and destroy the work of your hands? He's telling us, in our prayers and in our vows, two acts of the word. He could have said in your songs, in your discussions with one another, be really, really careful. 
Because foolishness and faithlessness mean that religion will end up biting you. It is a dangerous thing. And so he comes up in verse 7. He says this. He says, much dreaming and many words are meaningless. Therefore, fear God. What he's not saying here is the classic, uh, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. That's a, the underlying principle of all biblical wisdom. He's saying, be really afraid. Religion and spirituality should scare you. It's a fear that says, put it down and back away slowly. This is really dangerous. Why? It's there in verse 2. God is in heaven and you are on earth, so let your words be few. The God that you are dealing with, the God that your religion is trying to relate to, is the God who created the universe. And so you mess with him at your peril. Religion, he says, should scare us. Under the sun, it's like playing with a live hand grenade. One day it is going to blow up in your face, he's saying, so be afraid. Be afraid. He comes up with a conclusion in chapter 7, a little bit later on from what the passage we're looking at. And he says, don't be over-righteous. Could you imagine the Bible actually telling you, actually, don't be over-righteous and neither be over-wise. Why destroy yourself? He's telling us that in religion and spirituality, there is real danger. Okay, church is over, let's go. Uh, Trinity Hills, no longer going to meet. It's a real issue though, isn't it? What do we do with this? Because we are Christians. We want to relate to God, but the teacher in God's word is telling us that this is a really dangerous thing to do. A really dangerous thing. What's the heart of the problem? Now we have to remind ourselves continually that the teacher is looking at this under the sun he's analyzing religion from our perspective and as he does so he correctly identifies the issue he diagnoses the problem but then he prescribes the wrong treatment 729 he says this only i've found god created mankind upright but they have gone in search of many schemes Chapter 1, verse 15, he says, What is crooked cannot be straightened. What is lacking cannot be counted. He's saying there is actually something fundamentally wrong at the heart of people. He says that we are bent out of shape. What God has bent by the curse in response to our sin, we cannot straighten. And this sin, this bentness at the heart means that as we relate to God, we do so at our peril. The heart of sin is substituting God for us. We get rid of him and we put ourselves at the center. And the teacher tells us that when people who do not have God at the center approach God, it is very, very dangerous. The teacher gets 
the diagnosis right. But then his answer, back away, probably isn't the way we want to go. We'll come back to that. But do we get religion wrong? How do we get religion wrong? I think we do. I want to give you two ways. One I think is more prevalent for us, but both I think are very real. The first is we can actually approach the whole religion and spirituality question along the lines of it's our way to manage God. We build it on our performance and we have confidence in our performance. I do stuff for God, so he does stuff for me. It's like we establish some kind of a contract between us, obviously not formal, but in our heads and our hearts, we believe that we tick these boxes, we do these things, we live God's way and he therefore must bless us. We turn a relationship into rules. We turn obedience into leverage. You know, maybe you've told someone in your household that you want, uh, you want them to do something for you and they do it and then they use that to try and get you to do something in response. But I did this for you. Do we turn our obedience into leverage? Do you remember the story Jesus told in Luke 15 of the father who had two sons? We're familiar with it. We call it the prodigal son, uh, although the father actually has two sons. Uh, We're more familiar probably with the first half of it where the younger brother comes into dad and says, Dad, I want my inheritance now. And so the father gives him his money and he goes out and he parties hard and eventually he ends up bankrupt, feeding the pigs, starving in a famine and he comes to his senses and says, I better go home. It's better to be a servant in my father's estate than to be here. And so he goes home. We'll come back to him. But you remember, there's another brother. There's a brother that never left home. There's a brother who always did the right thing. There's a brother who ran the family business, who was responsible, who was upright, who was moral. Do you remember him? Do you remember his reaction when the younger brother came home? He couldn't even speak of his brother as brother. Your son, he says to his father, not my brother. Your son, your son who wasted your wealth with prostitutes has come back and you throw him a party. You forgive him. What's behind this? I've slaved for you, he says. I've done all the right things. I never disobeyed you. You owe me. Do you see his heart? Do you see his heart? We see it in a movie. Some of you may have seen this. It's a little bit of an old movie. It's well worth watching, though, called Armadeus. Has anyone seen Armadeus? It's a movie about a a composer, Antonio Salieri, uh, who is a court composer uh, for the king in Vienna and uh, his rivalry and his relationship with Mozart. Okay? And at the start of the film, Salieri is driven to attempted suicide. And he ends up in an institution and he is visited by Father Volga. Uh, not Volga, but Volga. Uh, 
I'm sure he wasn't vulgar. Uh, anyway. Um, and he relates his story. He relates his story to this priest. His desire to serve God through music. And he says, while my father prayed earnestly to God to protect commerce, I would offer up secretly the proudest prayer a boy could think of. Lord, make me a great composer. Let me celebrate your glory through music and be celebrated myself. Make me famous through the world, dear God. Make me immortal. After I die, let people speak my name forever with love for what I wrote. In return, I will give you my chastity, my industry, my deepest humility every hour of my life. You see the bargain that he struck. And then Mozart, complete inane Pratt, gifted beyond comprehension, appears and upsets his world. Salieri had made a bargain and God didn't deliver. And he ends up bitter and twisted and conspiring to drive Mozart to death. His attempted suicide is his remorse for his involvement in Mozart's death. Do we make bargains with God? Do we pray, God, I will give you this, this and this. I will serve you faithfully if you give me this, you give me this, you give me this. Maybe we're not quite as obvious as that. But we actually believe in our hearts, though, that our service of God makes, it, makes God's blessing an imperative. We, we earn it. And when things don't go to plan, we accuse, we are angry. How could you do this to me, God? After all I have done for you. How do you deal with setbacks? How do you deal with things not working out for you? Where you think this is the way it's meant to go. But God seems to have other plans. Do you ever feel that God's not keeping his side of the bargain? If you do, maybe, maybe you are trying to manage God. Another thing is, think about your prayers. How much do confession and repentance figure? Because if you're trying to manage God, you don't want to admit, you don't want to admit what's going on in your heart. So you've probably got a category of sin that largely is external to you. And other people tend to do it, not so much you. So when you think, do not murder, you think, okay, I haven't murdered anyone. But you know what Jesus says? I tell you, if you hate, you murder. Do not lust, or do, do not commit adultery. But Jesus says, if I, I tell you, if you lust, it's adultery. Jesus will not let us live with a definition of sin that is external. He takes sin to the heart. But if you... If you are operating on this paradigm, 
If this is your model of religion, I do stuff for God, God does stuff for me, you don't want to see sin. You also probably reduce obedience to externals as well. I do. But what are the two great commandments? Love. Love the Lord your God. Love your neighbour as yourself. Brothers and sisters, do we try and manage God? Do we think that God owes us? The teacher warns us. That is a very dangerous thing to do. The second thing is we can abuse grace. I think this can sometimes be a more easy thing for us to do because we talk so much about grace and we use it like it's a get-out-of-jail-free card. You know, remember Monopoly? used to pick these up from the community chest and uh, you'd store them and then when you ended up in jail, you just produced it and no $200 fine or anything like that. You just paid your way out or you gave it in. You didn't have to pay your way out. Do we use grace like a get-out-of-jail-free card? So we don't think about obedience. Obedience doesn't figure. What God wants doesn't figure because he saves us by grace. There was a story that Don Carson told of when he was studying in Berlin. And there was another student who was studying uh, at the same time. And he was aware that every Friday, this man would go off to the red light district uh, in Berlin where he would uh, invest and he would come back. And Don said he knew that this man not only was married and had a family back in Africa, but he had been raised in mission schools. So he had a Christian morality. And one day he confronted this man and he said, how do you think God would feel about what it is that you're doing? The man's response? To forgive is God's job. That's what he'd do. But brothers and sisters, do we, do we treat grace like a get-out-of-jail card? I don't actually have to be serious about my Christian life. I can be casual. I can be relaxed. It really doesn't matter. Grace, 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 grace. It's like a man saying, my wife loves me so much, she would never leave me, so I can be completely unfaithful because she loves me so much. Do you see how abhorrent that view of grace is? Have we become so casual that we lose our sense of awe? One of the disadvantages of meeting in the Aldgate Memorial Hall, there's one or two, uh, is that it, it's not really awe-inspiring, is it? You know, you do walk into St Peter's Cathedral, and as much as I'm happy that I'm here and not there, there is a bit of wow, this is big, this is, this is impressive. Uh, it does convey that sense of awe. While we have these really beautiful yellow chairs and grey chairs down the back, and, you know, it's so nice, isn't it? We're really relaxed and casual. But one of our issues, I think, is we, we bring relaxed and casual into our relationship with God. And the teacher says that's a very dangerous thing to do. Do we offer the sacrifice of fools? The teacher recognises that we have an issue, that we draw near to God with an inbuilt weakness. 
We are finite coming to the infinite. We are unholy coming before the holy. Some of you would have seen this movie, Batman versus Superman. Anyone? Surely a few. Surely a few. I'm going to spoil the ending for you, okay? Batman and Superman have been fighting and Batman has made a kryptonite spear. And we know, you know much about Superman. Superman, the one thing that will undo Superman is kryptonite. Okay, and Superman has to go and get the kryptonite spear so he can kill the, the monster thing that's been created. Okay, I don't know what it's called. It's some nasty beast. But in the process of approaching the kryptonite and killing the monster, he also kills himself. Superman ends up seeking the very thing that will destroy him. The teacher is saying in religion... We seek the very thing that will destroy us. So back away. Be very careful with what you do. But there's a problem. Because the, key, the teacher knows we can't avoid God forever. Eventually, he will judge and we will be called into account. And also, he knows that we are, we are made for relationship with God. Ecclesiastes 3.11, he set eternity in the human heart. A set eternity. We are aware that we are actually meant to be in relationship with the infinite creator. Augustine, a fourth century African Christian, said this. He said, you have made us for yourself and our hearts are restless until they can find rest in you. We are designed for relationship with God, but that relationship, given our inbuilt bentness, that relationship destroys us. The teacher's answer, back away. God's answer is Christ. He gives us the one true worshipper where the infinite becomes finite. The Holy One took on the form of sinful humanity if at the heart of sin is substitution, us for God, at the heart of salvation is substitution, God for us. Christ comes and he lives for us. He lives the life that we should have lived. He does what is demanded of us perfectly as our representative. The Bible speaks about him as a second Adam. As in Adam all die, so in Christ, he is the second Adam. He is the one who fulfills what we could not. He brings glory to the Father. John's gospel, every work brings glory to the Father. He perfectly fulfills the law. He who had no sin becomes sin for us. God gives us the one true worshipper. He gives us, as Hebrews tells us, a perfect high priest, one that doesn't need to offer sacrifices for his own sin, one who lives forever to intercede. He gives us, again in Hebrews, the perfect sacrifice. He gives us cleanness. He gives us holiness. He makes us straight. Hebrews 10. This priest, Jesus, when he had offered once for all 
the, for all time, one sacrifice for sin. He sat down at the right hand of God. It's finished. Verse 14, by the one sacrifice he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. At the heart of Christianity is this substitution, is God for us. But when we think about it, I think so often we think about it is our sin that is given to Christ on the cross, that he makes atonement for it. And that is true. But what we so often miss is that his righteousness, his holiness, his perfection, as Hebrews 10 is telling us, one sacrifice he has made perfect forever. He hasn't just made, he hasn't just wiped the slate clean. He has made us perfect. He has given us his righteousness. So this transfer is actually both ways. He takes our sin. We take his righteousness. And so, brothers and sisters, God's answer isn't the teacher's answer, back away. God's answer is, I will deal with your bentness. I will deal with the sin. I will deal with the very thing that means you cannot approach. And so in verse 19 of chapter 10 in Hebrews, brothers and sisters, we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus. Verse 22, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and full assurance, full assurance, confidence, not back away, but step forward. Because Jesus transforms, redeems religion. Diagnosis of the teacher was right, but he was only working under the sun. But God is under the heavens and he gives us the answer. That means we can have confidence. Not arrogance, not presumption, but confidence. Confidence that rests in grace. Because we know, we know what that access cost. And as we see our sin, so we see his grace We know the one to whom we draw near. As we are aware of our shortcomings, we are aware so much more of his perfection. Brothers and sisters, Hebrews 12 speaks like this, that we come to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, that's the church, to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word, than the blood of Abel. Abel's blood cried out for vengeance. Jesus' blood cries out for forgiveness. And through that blood, we have confidence to enter. Confidence to come before God. Confidence to find in Him the thing that we need. The thing that will make our life sing. Our life dance. Our life Be this life that he has given us. Find our rest in him. So brothers and sisters, do we need to repent? Do you need to repent of the light regard, the casual familiarity? Yes, we call him father. 
but he is the judge of all. Yes, we call Jesus brother, but it is by his blood that we are forgiven. Do we need to repent of our slackness, our grace, 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 as if it cost nothing? It costs us nothing because it cost him everything. Grace is not opposed to effort. Grace is merely opposed to earning. Grace says you are accepted. You can enter. You can have confidence and full assurance. Come in. And as we do, as we know that we are accepted, as we know that we are loved, as we delight in that relationship, we can repent of our pathetic attempts at manipulating God, as putting God in our debt. We don't need to play those games with God. He is our Father and He has blessed us with every spiritual gift. We don't need to bend God to our ends. We need to repent of that. We need to recognize that the confession of the younger brother is our confession each and every day. Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son, to be called your daughter. That should be our confession every single day. But we should respond hearing the voice of our father. Quick, bring the best robe, put it on him, put it on her, put a ring on his finger, sandals on his feet, bring the fatted calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. This son of mine, this daughter of mine is alive again. He, she was lost and is found. Brothers and sisters, we don't need to manipulate God. And why would we treat this love? Quick, bring the best robe. Bring the fatted calf. This delight that the father has in his daughter, in his son, come home. Brothers and sisters, true life, life of meaning, life of substance, life of significance is found in Christ, not through a formality of religion, not through cheap grace, but through the wonderful relationship forged by the blood of Christ. So therefore we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. So let us be thankful and worship God acceptably with reverence and awe for our God is a consuming fire. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you that even though in our bentness, in our sin, in our rejection of you, we seek what can only come from you through all sorts of things, 
work and relationships and pleasure and wisdom. Religion. Lord, we have a form of relating to you, but so often we either take you for granted or we seek to manipulate you and bend you to our ends. Father, we are sorry. Father, grant us true repentance. Help us to rest in your grace, knowing that it is your, it is your love for us lavished upon us that means that we can be called sons and daughters of you. Father, help us to see the wonder of the gospel of grace, the fact that Jesus, the one true worshipper, our great high priest, the one perfect sacrifice. Father, he's opened the way for us to come before you with confidence, to delight in your love and not to fear. Father, give us grace each and every day that we might follow you faithfully, delighting in your grace and mercy, serving you and worshipping you with reverence and awe. And in Christ's name we pray. Amen.